Did you know that pit bull type dogs have been popular in the U.S. since the early 1900s? Considered America's breed, they were featured on military posters during World War I and World War II, as well as in movies and TV shows. We'll discuss this and other interesting fact about so-called dangerous dogs with author Colin Dayan on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore life with dogs with author Colin Dayan. But first, a trivia question. Why was Sergeant Stubby so famous? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Colin Dayan on the show today. Dr. Dayan is a Robert Penn Warren professor in the humanities at Vanderbilt University, where she teaches American studies, comparative literature, and the religious and legal history of the Americas. After receiving her Ph.D. from the City University of New York Graduate Center in 1980, she taught at Princeton University, Yale University, the City University of New York, the University of Arizona, and the University of Pennsylvania. Her books include The Law is a White Dog, with Dogs at the Edge of Life, and Animal Quintet. She has written for New York Times, The Washington Post, and the London Review of Books, among other publications. When I discovered that Colin and I share a passion for dogs and that she has written extensively about them, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Colin will spark your curiosity too. Welcome to the show, Colin. It's great to have you here. Good to be here. You've written extensively about dogs. Why are you so passionate about them? That's a hard one to answer. When I uh, moved to Arizona, I had only one dog. And in Arizona, I moved out. It was Pima County. And this was up in the Tucson Mountains. It was mostly people with horses. So it was a lot of just land and beautiful space. My friend Vicki Hearn, who was a dog person, and wrote the book, How to Say Fetch, as well as many other dog books. She was my office mate at Yale. She brought her pit bulls into our building. Annie and Vic were right next, you know, right next to me. And I got to know dogs through Vicky. And when I moved to Arizona, that was my opportunity to have a pack. And that's what I wanted. And so Dogie was the first one, the Rottweiler. And then Medi and Jesse. They were both American Staffordshire Terriers. And so the three of them were with me all the way to Penn. And uh, Dogie died at the University of Pennsylvania. And then the other two lasted until Nashville. And then alas, now they're both gone. But it was the dogs themselves that got me completely. I mean, I guess I was always a dog person (laughs) without knowing it. But your question is more about the writing. You know, what was it? And I think that's the most important question, because in a way, I'm still trying to find whether or not in writing, in my prose, I could possibly get 
the voice of dogs, get the breath of dogs into the writing. And um, people have asked, well, what are you writing next? And it's hard to describe because I want it to be Stella's book as if it's in her voice, as if what would prose look like if my American Staffordshire Terrier decided to write about humans. So that's where I am. But the dogs, the interest in dogs began with the dogs themselves the pack out in the Tucson mountains. In your book, With Dogs at the Edge of Life, you suggest that we should try to see through the eyes of a dog. Could you explain why? Okay, there's a lot of discussion about the thought of dogs. Do dogs think? Do they have minds? And one of the things I've tried to show is that we have to think differently about what we mean by thought. Animals have cognition, but it's coming through the senses in a way our thought comes through the senses, but we don't recognize it. Well, we can see that in our dogs. And I want to stress in my work that what humans need to attain is a way of seeing kind of, as I call it, crosswise, otherwise, which would mean attentiveness so that it would bypass cognition, bypass thought, because it's another form of thought through the senses. And I believe that, you know, if one could do more of that, we would realize our kinship with the non-human, right? Because I'm trying in my work to set up a term other than humanity, which I think is a very dangerous abstraction. And so the best we can do is something like animality. But all of my work is to arrive at what does that mean? What would it mean to be like an animal? And so, you know, your question is a good one because everything was derailed once the dogs really came into the world of my writing. Because I was writing about law, as you know, case law in prisons. And the law is a white dog. As I was writing it, the dogs intruded more and more on the case law until by the end, the last chapter, Skin of the Dog, is all about my dogs. So I realized, okay, let it let it rip. And so the future work I let be about dogs. <laughs> but um, dogs, you know, I think it's a good question. Animal Quintet, that little memoir, was an attempt to show that, you know, it's not delimited to dogs alone. We're really talking about the creaturely, everything around us that we sometimes ignore or worse, destroy. So I'm, um, I, I guess that's the way I would answer your question. Why dogs? I mean, dogs headed the, the word, but it ended up being about all other kinds of animals as well. You've researched true stories about people and their dogs. Can you tell us one of the more fascinating stories that you were able to find in your research? You mean about other people and their dogs? Yeah, yeah. Let's see. Well, I think... So I uh, ended up getting drawn into the life of really pit bulls, American Staffordshire Terriers, because of my own. And I ended up hearing about the killing, the murder of 90 pit bulls in Louisiana of Floyd Boudreaux, 75-year-old man. These were summarily executed dogs because he was accused of dogfighting. And I think that's the real turn in my work. I drove to Louisiana to interview him. And um, this is before, you know, Trump was elected and before there was this great divide in the country between the rural white and let's say the city folk. And Floyd really changed my work talking to him about his dogs. You asked about love and loss. And I realized that there was another kind of love here. 
and that he, he, he was no longer fighting dogs. Dog fighting was outlawed in 76. And most of my interest in talking to him was to kind of understand what is the love that is not what, let's say, city people are used to, a kind of coddling, where to put a dog on a long chain outside would be seen as cruel, but crating a dog would not be. In any case, I got on a kind of unpopular side of things, let us say, because I was trying to open up people's minds to other forms of care and other forms of loving that are not necessarily filled with sentiment. And what those who are, I don't know how to describe those of us now <laughs> who have our dogs in our homes. I mean, Floyd Boudreaux's dogs, all murdered by the Humane Society and the ASPCA, although many were young, many had, had, some were just born, was what led me to believe that the forms of cruelty that are sometimes exercised by those who proclaim their humaneness is what we need to be most careful of. So that was where the, the dog thing began. It was more of a political piece about dead dogs and you couldn't really look at these dogs and not see who's who was with them. Very often the pit bull was laminated onto the African-American male. So there's a hell of a lot of racism attached as well to the, the damage against a certain breed of dog. So that's where my interest in dogs began. It was more of a political thing about targeting and canine profiling. And then I became more interested in more of the philosophical ways of talking about animals. Let's go into some of your memoirs. Your memoir, Belly of Her Ghost, is about your deceased mother who was Haitian and how she tried to assimilate into white Southern Belle High Society during the civil rights era. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I would love to. But I should say at first that the book in the belly of her ghost was the first. And, as, and then the next was Animal Quintet. Originally, I wrote the two as one. So the mother's story was interspersed with the animal stories. And it was called Blue Book. And my editor and agent divided it into two. So it's a very different kind of thing. Now we got the mother story <laughs> on one side and the animals on the other, but you can imagine how different it would be if they were interleaved as they were. So to go back to your question, the mother was the original work that I was doing because I moved back to the South where I grew up and I never wanted to come back. I prefer Philly and uh, New York, but my mother got very ill in Atlanta and was dying and I was the only child and there were no other family members. So in 2005, I had to come back to care for her. So I took a job at Vanderbilt and was in Atlanta because I was on a leave that year. I had a Guggenheim and she died within three weeks. She got me back to the South. And so that's why she was much on my mind because I would, if it hadn't been for my mother, I would not have come back to the South and she always wanted me here. And so she got me. And so it's all a haunt a big haunt because after she died, my cousins in New York said, oh gosh, where do you live? And I said, well, Whitland. And they said, is that near a, a park with a school and near a church? I said, oh, right, right at the corner. They said, do you know where your mother lived after she got married? Right down the street. And they gave me the address of the house. So I didn't even know that. 
but I was brought back not only to the South, <laughs> but a block away. So that's why when I found those photographs, I sat down and wrote about to try to retrieve her. But the whole thing was very much a haunting. How would you haunting. say that your relationship with your mother has impacted you personally and also your writing? I think personally, yes. Every day of my life, I think without even know, having known it, I think uh, because I chose to be a, what she called a bookworm, which was for her the worst thing you could possibly be. She was a great beauty and very charming. I didn't like to wear makeup or be charming. And so she uh, and I were not, you wouldn't say exactly alike, <laughs> but um, she's always with me in any case because she was the greatest critic. And also because of the tragedy of her life, which I see as a great sadness, because she was not just a beauty. She had a terrific mind, but she was confined and loved by my father with all that that term love entails. So she was always just a beautiful object. And yet I got to hear her stories. And that's what I was trying to retrieve in the belly of her ghost is her world, the world that had been silenced when I was growing up. Um, so I don't know if how it changed my writing, except that she used to say, because I wrote some memoir early on in the Yale Review, I wrote about my father in a piece called Looking for Ghosts, and she made an appearance there. And I remember she was very proud of this story about my father after his death. And she would give it to her friends to read. And they would say, oh my God, we didn't know this about you. She go, oh, you know how Joan is. She likes to tell stories. These are just, just see these as fairy tales. So that's how she always presented what I wrote. It was just stories. It's my great imagination. And you probably have to explain to the listeners <laughs> that you were referred to as Joan before you yes, adopted. Joan is my given name. I was born as Joan Carroll. And my mother, however, loved the name Colin. Who knows where she saw it. She was a great fan of old movies. And she named me Colin. She, she called me Colin. My father hated it. He told her not to do it. And I wanted to retrieve the beauty when she passed of her naming me the real name. So when I moved from Penn to here, I figured, well, she's passed. You're beginning anew. Give her the name she gave you. And I changed my name professionally and it's changed now. Everybody said not to worry that Google would <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> so uh, there are all kinds of stories as to what, you know, where did Colin come from? But that's it. That was her name. She loved it. And I think she was right. I think Google did figure it out. Yeah. In your most recent book, Animal Quintet, A Southern Memoir, you discuss your family history and your upbringing in the South. So how has your background of being a person who was raised in the South impacted you? Well, I um, didn't realize all the years I was living in the North that the Southern past had a lot to do with my present the minute I got here, it all rushed back. It's a southern soil. It's a bloody soil. It certainly was filled with blood when I was growing up. And so the great terror and the great fear is what I, I began to experience and relive. And I tried to capture an animal quintet, the ways in which the great beauty of the soil and of the natural world was interleaved with a fear of men. <laughs> who hated people of color and wanted to be rid of them. 
And so, you know, it's funny, until talking with you right now, I hadn't ever thought of this, but Edmund Burke, the aesthetician, wrote about the sublime, and he named the sublime a pleasing terror. And I now understand what he meant, that, you know, terror, true terror, can be a form of strange delight. And I guess that's what I'm trying to capture in Animal Quintet, especially, because those stories come out of a feeling of fear, and yet they, um, they are written to give life to all the beauty that surrounded me. And, you know, people have often said, how could you survive? How did you like, how did you end up like even writing after a background where your parents hated you to even read? You know, they didn't want me to be an intellectual. And I think it is because of Lucille, who the woman who raised me, but also because of the natural world, everything that is here that keeps you moving, that isn't human, right? So that that's what, how I would answer that. It was it was just the terrain of this place called the South. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Well, yes, two things. <laughs> One is that the real the work that I was doing when I couldn't help but write these memoirs is about the law. I'm really concerned about American law and the way in which it, it's not just the prison practices that concentrate on people of color and the poor. It's also the law itself. So I, I'm going back to my legal historian hat, and one of the works that I'm doing is on legal forfeiture, the way in which anybody can lose their home, their car, just on suspicion of having, let's say, an ounce of pot. It's a very interesting legal question that in other countries is abolished, forfeiture. But in the United States, civil forfeiture is still practiced. So I just want to end by saying uh, the work that I'm doing now is back to the study of legal forfeiture. And it really is also shown in Boudreaux's dogs. All those dogs were killed. How? Because they were forfeited to the state. So that's what my future, that's what I'm working on. And where can listeners find out more about you? Oh, I would say just Google and have fun because there are, just Google Colin, Diane, and there's a lot. I have a website which has videos. I think that that would be an enjoyable way to just kind of dive into the different things that I do because I think they all tie together. It was great to have you on the show, Colin. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. Thank you so much. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. Why was Sergeant Stubby famous? Sergeant Stubby was one of the most decorated dogs in military history. A hero of World War I, the pup fought for 18 months in the trenches, saved a number of lives, and even caught a German soldier by the seat of his pants. We'll end the show with something punny. What kind of dog is always on time? A watchdog. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Curious Professor podcast. If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to the Curious Professor podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.